In this video, I'm going to explain Ethereum smart contracts. I'm going to start by putting them in the context of the Ethereum world state, which is the thing that they exist in order to modify. Then we'll talk about how we interact with smart contracts, so transaction call data, function selectors, and the ABI. Then we'll go inside the smart contract and look at storage function modifiers and Turing completeness, which is perhaps the most important concept in all of computer science and the key to understanding the significance of the world computer. So what I've drawn here is my sort of artistic interpretation of an Ethereum smart contract. And I'll explain what all of this machinery looking stuff is a little bit later. But first I wanna focus in on the world state. So I have a simplified version of the diagram. And here we're just looking at this underlying foundational layer, which is the Ethereum world state. The world state is just a whole bunch of data, but this data exists in a sense at the heart of Ethereum. It's sort of the enshrined crown jewel at the center of the system. And in a sense, all of the complicated mechanisms in Ethereum, like proof of stake, uh, Merkle trees, blocks, hashing, these things all just exist in a sense to support the ability of the system to have this world state, to maintain the world state and allow it to change over time according to certain rules. I'll talk more about those rules a little bit later, but first, what is this data? Like what kinds of things are in this giant world state? And there's just two sorts of objects. There's regular accounts and contracts. And regular accounts are pretty simple. There's an address that points to a nonce and a balance, just two numbers. Contracts are similar. You have an address that points to nonce balance, but then we also have storage and code. And that's it. These are the kinds of things, just these two different kinds of objects that are in the world state and at the center of Ethereum. And I'm showing these objects on my diagram. For example, I have these three narrow sections here. There's one here, one here, and one here. These are each meant to be accounts. Then I have these larger sections like this one here, and that's meant to be a contract. And as you can see on an account, I have the data that I mentioned. There's an address in purple. There's a balance in green and a nonce in blue. And then contracts have the same data. And then they also have their code here in gray and their storage here. And the reason that I'm using all these different colors for this data is one, because it looks cool, two, because I want to distinguish the sections from each other, and three, because I want to be as accurate as I can with how I'm representing the data. So for example, for the address here, you can see that I have a whole bunch of cells and each cell is one of four possible colors, including white. So I have white and three shades of purple. So four possible colors is equivalent to two bits of data and I have 80 cells here in total. So that's 160 bits of data. And it's the same kind of thing for the nonce. The nonce in Ethereum is 64 bits. And so I have 32 cells here with four different colors. Same thing for the balance, 256 bits, 128 cells, four colors. And I'm using the same scheme for the contracts. For the contract code, I'm using gray just to show that it's, or to suggest that it's immutable. For the contract storage, I have 16 possible colors per cell. So that's four bits of data. And the width here, the number of cells wide that I've drawn the contract is uh, 64 cells. So 64 cells, four bits, that's 256 bits of data per row. And that's accurate in a sense because Ethereum contracts they do deal with their storage in 256-bit chunks, which I'll talk about later. 
And before we get to code and storage, just a note on addresses, because Ethereum accounts and contracts have addresses that look very similar, but they're actually derived in different ways. And the reason for that is that Ethereum accounts are controlled by a private key, whereas contracts are not. They have no private key. They're controlled by their code. So the way that a address is derived for a regular Ethereum account is that you, first of all, you start with your private key. So this is just a large random number that you generate. Then you derive from that your public key, which is associated with that private key. Then you hash the public key and take the last 20 bytes of it. And that's your address. In the case of a smart contract, it's a little bit different. You take and you take the address of the deployer of the contract plus their nonce at the time of deployment, and you hash that, and then you take the last 20 bytes of that, uh, that value that's, that comes out of that. Or if you're using the create two method to create the, the contract, use a slightly different scheme, the sender address plus a salt, and the hash of the code plus this header, and you take the last 20 bytes of that. So the address for regular Ethereum accounts is linked to the private key, which is important because we need to be able to verify whether a certain transaction was actually signed by the private key associated with some address. For contracts though, the address is really just an identifier. It's almost just like a random number that has been picked to point to that particular object in the world state. And so one other thing I'd like to talk about is the balance. The balance, as I mentioned, is a 256-bit number, and this is the amount of ETH that the account or contract holds. But the system doesn't real, really deal in terms of ETH. It deals, it does everything in terms of the smallest, the smallest unit of ether, which is Wei. So if we take a balance, for example, like this one here, this is one of Vitalik's addresses. We take this amount, 4,600 ETH and a bunch of decimals, and we can convert it to the different denominations of ether. And this amount, what it really is, is just this amount of way. So it's this huge, like trillion, trillion, whatever amount of way. And this is how the system deals with ether. It doesn't worry about decimal places or fractions of ether or anything like that. Everything is like the smallest unit is a single way and that cannot be divided. And then in our UIs, in Etherscan or MetaMask or whatever, we uh, display that in terms of Ether, so we add the decimal, but that's just for convenience, really. The next thing to mention is bytecode. So this is where the logic of the contract lives, obviously, and this data exists on the Ethereum world state in a format kind of like this. This is some contract bytecode. This is the contract creation code. And this is obviously pretty incomprehensible to people, but each of these, each two characters is, a, is an opcode. This is something the EVM will interpret. It interprets these bytes. So these are hexadecimal characters, so that's four bits per character. So we need two characters to uh, denote a, an opcode, a byte, and these are various instructions. So we'll have an opcode and then we might have some, some arguments and so on. But the, this data is essentially a, a whole bunch of these. These are the EVM opcodes. These are the operations that the EVM is capable of doing. 
And every contract that's deployed to Ethereum, you know, you write it in Solidity, then it gets compiled down to a whole bunch of these opcodes. And your whole program is sort of decomposed into a whole bunch of these little operations. And that is what the EVM actually interprets. Now, supposing that we want to interact with the logic in some contract, maybe it's a NFT project and we want to mint an NFT. We will do that by sending a transaction to that contract. So that's actually what I've done here. I minted 10 of my own NFTs. And so I sent a transaction to the contract and I included in that transaction some call data. So this is data that is sent to the contract telling it what I want it to do. So I'm calling a function here. I'm calling the mint function and I'm including a bunch of data, uh, details for how I want the mint to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So you'll notice this method ID here and you probably already know this, but this method ID is derived by taking the function that we're calling as well as its arguments. And we want to take the hash of that without the names of the arguments. We just want the function name and the types for the arguments. And if we hash that, we get this hash here. And so then we take the first four bytes. So 731133E9, 731133E9. So when I created this transaction and this call data was populated, what it actually looks like is this. And so you can see that that function selector, that code is the first little chunk of data there. So there's the function selector, then there's the arguments and they're just kind of like packed in together. And then the contract is able to decode this information and know, know to mint some NFTs. But how does the contract or the EVM actually decode this information? Like how does it interpret this method ID and know to send this, these arguments to the right function, to the right chunk of code? Like we understand that this function, this method ID, this function selector is derived from hashing this function signature. But remember the function signature doesn't actually exist in the contract. Like the bytecode here for the contract does not contain function signatures. It's a whole bunch of bytecode like this, a bunch of bytes. And the compiler, when it compiles, it gets rid of all of this, of the names of functions and so on, because they're not needed. And there's no, there's no purpose of having them on chain. So how does the system actually know what to do with this method ID, if it doesn't have the name of the function that it corresponds to? It took me a while to find the answer to this question and the solution is really fascinating. It turns out that the EVM and like the core Ethereum system, it has no idea what a function selector is. All this function selector stuff is actually implemented sort of at the language level. And what I mean by that is if you think about how we actually interact with a smart contract, what the EVM does is it'll take your transaction with your call data, it'll pull up the contract code that you're calling and it will set aside your call data for a second and just start executing the bytecode in that contract. So the EVM is really this dumb machine that simply follows the rules or follows the instructions in the contract. 
and it doesn't know about function selectors. It doesn't take your first four bytes and like apply some predetermined, you know, logic to decide where to route it. It doesn't do any of that. All it does is start executing the instructions in the bytecode. And what it's likely to find there is the function selector logic. What the bytecode in the contract is going to instruct the EVM to do is it's going to say, take that call data, pull the first four bytes from it and set that aside. Just hold on to that. Now it's going to, it's going to then compare those four bytes against uh, the signatures for the functions that it has that are public. So maybe it has four functions. It's going to go, does it match this? Do the four bytes in the call data match these four bytes? Do they match these four bytes? Do they match these four bytes? Until it gets a match. And then when it gets a match, it'll say, okay, now go to this certain section in the contract bytecode and just execute from there. And what's likely to happen then is that bytecode there is going to say, okay, you're calling the mint function. Well, it doesn't know what mint is, but it's going to instruct the EVM to say, go back to your call data, pull out the first, you know, pull out the, uh, these 256 bit chunks. Those are the arguments, right? And like set those aside. And then we're going to continue doing whatever we do and it's going to execute whatever it does. But that is where the function selector logic lives. So every contract is going to re-implement this on its own. They all have this function selector logic just written into the contract, into their, uh, their bytecode. And this really kind of blew me away, especially when I was asking about this on Twitter and uh, Jesper here told me that not only is the function selector logic implemented in the contract, in the bytecode, but you can even have different function selector logic depending on the size of the, depending on the number of functions that are public that a caller might be calling. Because if you have, say you just have like four uh, public functions, you have four possible like function selector values, then all you do to implement that logic, the function selector logic is say, take the selector from the call data, compare it against this one, then this one, then this one, then this one. And it either matches or it doesn't. But if you have like a hundred uh, functions that can be called, then going through that list in a, in a linear way like that is going to be very inefficient. Your users who are making transactions, they're gonna be paying for that, all that EVM time searching through this big list only to finally get to the function at the bottom that uh, they're looking for, right? So the compilers, they can actually be smart about this and they can use something like binary search. So the function selector logic from two different contracts might be entirely different. One uses a linear search through this list. The other one might use a binary search. So it's there the function selector logic is gonna be a little more complex. So the, the total size of the contract that's deployed on chain might be a little bigger and the like the logic might is going to be a little more complex to uh, search through that that big hundred functions, but it's going to find its answer a lot faster, right? So at some point the number of functions gets large enough that it actually makes 
more sense in terms of the gas savings to use a binary search rather than a linear search. So that's how that works. Okay, so I'll say a few things really quickly about constructors and contract initialization. So when we actually deploy a contract, the code that we upload is this contract creation code, and it's a little bit different from the runtime code. So the runtime code is the code that our users will actually interact with. The contract creation code includes our runtime code, but it also includes instructions on how to like set the contract up. And that will include the calling of the uh, constructor, which will set any initial variables to whatever values we want. And this whole process will also include the allocation of our storage. So if, for example, we have three variables, or say we just have one variable in our contract, that storage is going to be set aside when we deploy our contract. It'll be initialized to all zeros, unless we then change it in the um, in the constructor. But that storage is, in a sense, it never changes. Like the value that's stored in that variable can change, but the fact that we have that one variable there, that doesn't go anywhere. We can't add more variables later, just at any point. And so the, the storage, like the amount of storage we're, we're setting aside for our contract is in a sense fixed at deploy time. The exception to that, of course, is when we have dynamic data structures like mappings and arrays where the size of them can change. So in that situation, we can have say three variables and a mapping and, a, and an array. Now, the fact that we have three variables, a mapping and an array, that doesn't change. We can't, at a later date, add another mapping or another variable. We can't do that. <clears throat> but the size of the, the mapping and array, those can change. And the values within those three variables can change. But the set of you know, things that we have in our storage, that is fixed at deploy time. Okay, on to the ABI. What is the ABI? The ABI is the Application Binary Interface. It's really just an interface, a helpful way to communicate how to interact with the contract. So here I have a little contract with four functions, but one of these functions is private, so it's not accessible to the outside world. Um, we have three functions that are public. And so we need to, or it would be nice to provide some map to our users on how to interact with these functions, right? Ideally, we upload our entire source code somewhere, and that can be verified against the bytecode that we have on chain. But that's not quite ideal because we don't want to force our users to have to parse through all of our uh, source code in order to know how to interact with the, the contract. So we provide this ABI, and this is created by the compiler, and it's very simple. It just tells you how to interact with the public functions, uh, input arguments, and so on. I mentioned that some of these functions are private and some are public. So this public-private thing refers to function visibility. And this is a feature of Solidity and probably Viper too, I'm not sure. And similar to the function selector stuff, this is not something that the EVM has any idea about. When you write code like this and you have a certain function being private, the resultant bytecode that is compiled from this source code it simply is structured such that the private function cannot be accessed, cannot be accessed by an external caller. And that's just written into the 
you know, the bytecode that's produced. And it's not something that Solidity knows anything about. And so there's a few different function visibility specifiers. There's public and private, which are pretty straightforward. And then we have external and internal. And yeah, public is accessible by basically anyone, other accounts, other contracts. Private is not accessible to outside entities. Internal is similar to private, but accessible to contracts which inherit from your contract. External is similar to public, but it can only be called from outside, not from another function in the contract, for example. But these simply, like I said, modify how the bytecode is actually structured and the EVM just follows the bytecode and does whatever it does. I won't say too much about transaction receipts and events, except that they're an easy way to sort of see what has happened in a given block. So rather than having to parse through the world state to see if some change that you're interested in has happened, you can just check the, the transaction receipts and see if an event was emitted, confirming your Uniswap trade or whatever it might be. I won't say too much about storage. I already mentioned that the storage is initialized when the contract is deployed. And it's initialized in a sense as one astronomically large array, which is pretty interesting. But in practice, we can think of it like a key value store. And if you wanna learn more about that, check out this article here and this one too. The other thing I'll mention before we get back to the diagram is that we have these modifiers, these function modifiers. And these are things which are features of Solidity. And Solidity will enforce, basically it will use these modifiers to compile our our contract in such a way that these uh, features are enforced. So for example, we could have a pure function, and that is a function which doesn't access the state in any way. It's dependent on nothing outside of itself. It's entirely pure. So these functions, an example might be a function that simply adds two numbers. It really doesn't matter what the state of the contract is. It doesn't matter what anything is. That function can just perform its job in a, this pure way, and that's what it does. <clears throat> we then have view functions, and these are kind of similar, but they disallow modification of the storage of the state, but you can view the state. So these are sort of passive functions in a sense, which are pretty useful actually. We then have payable functions, and this allows us to accept ether into the contract with the the function call so typically if you send eth with your transaction when you're calling a function on a contract it will revert unless the function is payable unless it's expecting ether to be sent with the call and the reason you might send ether with your call is you might be you know lending that ether on like a DeFi lending app so it actually needs to take that ether and do something with it and so on so now I'll explain how I'm representing these things in the diagram. So what I've got going on here is I have a bunch of functions. These things here are meant to be functions and some of them are public and some of them are private. So you can see that these ones here each have this function selector sort of tag associated with them. So these ones are public functions. They're accessible via the function selector logic. This function here is private. It doesn't have one of these tags and it's also recessed sort of under the surface here. So I'm imagining this, this upper surface, this upper layer 
is kind of the interface where the outside world, where the EVM kind of comes and docks with the contract, where it interacts with the contract. And this <clears throat> private function is not reachable there. But the private function is visible. I haven't drawn it obscured, and that's because that's how contracts actually work. These, like the code for the contract is not encrypted or hidden in any way. And we can, if we have the source code for the contract, we can verify it against the bytecode, and we can know exactly what the private function is doing. And even if we don't have that, we can decompile the bytecode and get a sense for what it's doing. But that doesn't really matter. We can't interact with the function. We can't call the function because it's not public. I also have next to the function selectors, this sort of grid here. And this is meant to be where the arguments to the function go. So each of these little squares has these four gold kind of pins or conductors there. And what I'm imagining there is that the EVM sort of comes down and like connects in some electronic way and sends the information down to the function. But it's, that's just an art, artistic interpretation of it. But the function has this place for the arguments to go and then it does whatever it does and it has some place for the return value. So this function has a return value and it displays it on this sort of LCD screen that I've drawn there. Whereas you can see this function here, it doesn't have a return value this might be a, an external function. So it's called by like a externally owned account, um, which there's, it doesn't need a return value. It might emit an, an event instead in, or something like that. This function also, by the way, has this payable mechanism here. This little Ethereum uh, crystal is meant to be signified that this function is a payable function. So that's where you would input your Ethereum, your ETH, that you're going to send with your transaction. And it would go down and be processed by the function logic somehow, and it would connect to the uh, contract balance. We can see also that some of these functions have this wiring that goes down to, this, to the ground floor. And it goes over to this thing, this pyramid, which I've drawn to represent a sort of, uh, just a mechanism that interacts with the storage. So, these two functions, they are interacting with the contract storage. And these two, for example, you can see that they are just connected directly to the, the contract storage, and they're just displaying whatever is found here. So these would be view functions. They're public, they're accessible, but they don't actually really do anything they just sort of communicate whatever's here in this particular place in storage, and they just allow that to be read easily. This function here is meant to be a pure function. You can see that this one, it has, a, it has arguments that it takes. It has a return value display segment. It has some machinery, it does whatever it does, but it's not connected in any way to the storage, to the state of the contract. So this would be a pure function. So that is the machinery for this specific contract. And kind of what I'm imagining here at a bigger picture is that, you know, we have this Ethereum world state and it's just a bunch of data, right? It's just inert, lifeless data in a sense. Even this EVM code for a given contract, like it defines some logic, it has some structure, but if it's not being used, if it's not active, it's just, this latent kind of passive data. It doesn't do anything, right?
So what I'm imagining is this world state is kind of there, it exists, it's kind of in stasis. And then when a transaction actually happens and the EVM starts interacting with a contract, right? Some, some transaction has occurred, calling some contract. I'm imagining the EVM is sort of like flying, <laughs> sort of like flying over the surface here and it moves to the contract that's being called and then it kind of brings it to life, right? It animates that logic that exists there for the contract. It summons it into existence. Like the, the code is there already, but it's just flat, right? It's not doing anything. The EVM comes and it brings it to life, right? It makes this machinery uh, active and, and you know, it starts moving and so on. And so the EVM visits upon some contract, spins up all of its machinery, all this abstract machinery. The, that machinery processes the transaction. It does whatever it does. And maybe the, the storage changes a bit. Like maybe the result of your transaction to this contract is that a few bits in the storage change. And that could mean a big, that could be a big deal for you. That could mean a lot of money. But that's really all that happens, right? Is the EVM comes, it spins it up, the contract does whatever it does, and the state changes a little bit. So at the end of the day, the result of all of this is just that the state changes, right? The result of all that machinery doing whatever it does and computing things and so on is that the storage associated with that contract may change a little bit. The ETH balance may change. The ETH balance for another account may change if the contract sends some ETH or whatever, right? But the point is the world state is the thing that changes as a result of all of this machinery doing whatever it does. But what are the capabilities of this machinery? What are its limitations? Like how big of a deal is it that we have this world computer thing with this sort of compute space on it and we can build these abstract machines in it? Like what are the implications of that? And that brings us to the question of Turing completeness. But first, what is a Turing machine? So a Turing machine is this abstract computational model, this abstract machine thought up by Alan Turing in 1936. And the machine that he imagined is actually pretty simple. You essentially have this long infinite tape and you have this head which can read and write symbols to and from the tape according to some table of rules. And it's simple enough that we've built these physical approximations of these machines. They don't quite have infinite tapes, but apart from that, they're basically Turing machines. And this also is how essentially how our modern computers work, except they have random access to their tape, their memory, but they are essentially Turing machines too. Now, what was really significant about the Turing machine was that Turing showed it to be a fully general machine, a fully general computational machine. And what that means is that the Turing machine is capable of computing anything which can in principle be computed. There are certain things which simply cannot be computed, cannot be decided by a machine, but of the entire universe of things which can ever be computed by any possible machine, the Turing machine is capable of computing all that stuff. So what that means is there's no higher machine. There's no machine that we're going to invent in a hundred years or a thousand years that is somehow more computationally expressive than the Turing machine. Now it's important to distinguish computational expressiveness from the speed and memory of the actual machines that we physically build. 
because clearly we've had the idea of Turing machines for many decades, and yet our computers improve every year, they get faster every year. So clearly we're figuring something out, we're improving them in some way, and that's true, but what we're doing there is essentially just making our Turing machines, our computers, run faster. So the computers of today are, in a sense, the same in terms of their expressive ability as the computers from the 60s or 70s. But we're just making our computers run really, really, really fast. And the other little detail there, too, is that we're also giving them more memory. So the Turing machine was theorized, imagined, as this thing with infinite memory. So it was this machine that's imagined without the limitation that we would have in the physical world, just to get a sense of like what can in principle be computed by this sort of thing, by any machine. But of course, when we actually build any computer, it has to have a finite amount of memory. It has to have a finite tape. And so the computers that we build over time, we give them more memory. So they're still as expressive in a sense, but as you give the thing more memory, there are more problems that it can actually handle, that it can actually do. And GPUs, by the way, are not more computationally expressive either than Turing machines. They're essentially just like having, say, a thousand little Turing machines all running in parallel really quickly. GPUs are just really good at doing parallel execution of pretty simple computational tasks. And quantum computers are also not more expressive than Turing machines. They, anything that a quantum computer does, a Turing machine can emulate that. It can do the same thing too. The difference is a quantum computer can do it faster. There's certain algorithms that a quantum computer can do in a fundamentally faster way, whereas the Turing machine, it can do it, but it'll have to take the long route to do it. One more thing I'll note here is that there are lower machines. There's these computational machines that are like Turing machines, but they're less expressive, they're less capable. These are things like finite state machines, pushdown automata. And so a Turing machine being at the top of this hierarchy, it can emulate any of those lower machines. So if you wanted to build a finite state machine inside of your Turing machine, you can do that. But you can't go the other direction. A finite state machine cannot emulate a Turing machine. It's simply a weaker computational machine. And I think an analogy for this might be, if you imagine the problem of, of traveling and moving through a space, you know, you can imagine something like a car. And a car has a certain capacity, a certain ability to travel, but it needs roads. Like it can't cross bodies of water, for example. So it has some ability to get you from A to B, but it has some limitation. And that might be like a finite state machine. Then you can imagine you invent like a flying machine that can just go anywhere. It can go over water, it can go over mountains, it can go anywhere. And that would be like a Turing machine. Like, you might have your flying machine that has a certain fuel capacity or something. It has a certain speed that it travels at. And that would be, you know, it's a limitation on it. But that machine in principle, it's general. It can go anywhere. It might take, you might have a faster or slower one, but it's like, it's, it's, it's unbounded. 
anywhere that you can travel to, you can get there with your flying machine. So Turing completeness, which is this quality that Ethereum smart contracts have, is just this quality of having the computational expressiveness of a Turing machine. So you have this like full generality and that's an incredible, pow incredibly powerful thing. So I had planned to talk a little bit about how computers can be, how they're just machines and how they can be made out of, in a sense, anything. Like you could build a computer out of like gears and metal or like running water as your, as your electron flow. And people have essentially proved this in Minecraft by making these insane computers within Minecraft, but I'm not gonna go into that. Instead, I'm going to talk about the implications of this idea, the significance of generality and why it matters. One of the mistakes that I think people make, which causes them to underestimate new technologies, is they myopically focus on the applications of the new technology as they are at that time and can't really see beyond that. They can't really imagine where things might go. And I think one of the reasons for that is that people have a hard time appreciating the power of generality. And that makes some sense because if I tell you something is just general, like it can do kind of anything in some space, it's hard to imagine what that actually might be. Like if I say it can do anything, I think people just kind of, nothing appears, right? There's nothing that comes up and really wows them. So for example, skeptics of early computers, I think, couldn't see past the nascent applications of the day, right? You had basic games, you had basic word processing. They were very clunky. Like at the time, none of it was that impressive. But com computers are general machines. And I think some people knew that. They understood that this thing is capable of doing anything that can be computed. We just have to make them faster. And that's probably doable over time. So for them, it was this endless la landscape of possible things that could be built because it's a general, it's almost like a general thinking machine. If you can write good enough programs, it will just do anything you can imagine. So it's like, man, I think some people saw that and they would have, you know, if there was an easy way to bet on it, they would have bet, you know, a lot of money on the future capabilities of that thing. And same for the internet, right? The early internet was very unimpressive. You had email, basic websites, and basically you had existing, things that existed in other forms were basically just kind of ported, kind of imported onto the internet. So you would have like a newspaper kind of just copy and paste it onto the internet. And that, you know, for, for the most part, that wasn't that impressive to most people because it's like, well, I already have the newspaper. So sure, this is harder to read, I guess. But of course, again, the internet is a general data network. Like any information can be converted into binary data and transferred over uh, the wire, over fiber optic, over whatever. So the internet is this like, you have these general machines, these general computing machines now connected by a general into this general network, it's like, well, it can do everything. It's going to be able to do everything, right? Like video and audio and images and programs and virtual money or virtual worlds and money now, like infinite possibilities, right? And I think, you know, the world computer, this new kind of 
phase of the internet is the same thing. It's like we have the applications of the day and some of them are actually pretty impressive, I would say, but many don't have a lot of users, etc. But you have to appreciate the power of generality. And what are you going to get when you have this general computing machine, this general computing machine in this network full of these computers, these general computing machines connected with this general network. And now you're introducing this world computer, which itself is fully general and has this additional capability of being able to be like the world's computer, like a shared compute space that your, your programs will, will run reliably and no one can shut them down and all of these things, right? Clearly you can implement money on that system, but like no one alive today, I think can imagine all of the possibilities that are, that lie ahead when we have this technology, right? It's just so big. So <clears throat> I think just appreciating that generality gives you like, it's still hard or maybe impossible to imagine all of these future use cases. But if you have it in your head that the thing is, has this incredible power of generality and that the space of possible things is infinite, then you at least have it in your head, like don't underestimate it, right? Cause it's probably gonna be huge. So this is a little clip from, this is Bill Gates on Letterman and it's just illustrating the point um, Gates is talking about the internet, trying to hype it up and not convincing Letterman. And Gates is talking about broadcasting like a baseball game over the internet so people can listen to it. And Letterman's like, have you heard of radio, Bill? And everyone laughs. And the point is like, he was obviously wrong, right? Letterman completely missed it because he was thinking by analogy and not by first principles. He was just thinking, well, radio, we already have that. But Gates, obviously, he's like, these are general machines on a general network. Like, this is going to be huge. And he was obviously right. And finally, of course, I think while we can't know all of the places this technology will go, I do think that one of the frontiers, one of the big things that are possible potentially with this technology is that we go all the way up the stack. We're starting at money, finance, and we go up from there. We, we start restructuring our organizations and eventually we get to the top of that pyramid and we rebuild the government itself using something like this Dow democracy idea from Ralph Merkel, which I'll do future videos on eventually. Because final point is, you know, the fact that the tagline for democracy is that it's the least bad system. Like that should tell you something, you know? Are we really not going to try to improve it? This is the topic for a whole nother video though, so I will end it there. Okay, thanks for watching. The illustration from the video will be available as an NFT. So if you want to support the channel, go ahead and mint some of those. I'm not quite sure what the next topic will be yet either Ethereum proof of stake or maybe something in the rollups domain. But I will have some podcast style non-crypto videos coming out soon. So watch out for those. And yeah, thanks for watching. Peace.